Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. And if you like today's program, or even if you don't, uh, you should subscribe on uh, Google, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, uh, all the other platforms out there. And please leave us uh, reviews so that other people can find the podcast as well. So today we're going to be talking about a recurring theme, something that we come to back to periodically on the show, which is the end of the world. And to help us discuss that, we have Matt Frost, who is uh, the author of a recent piece in the New Atlantis magazine called After Climate Despair. Uh, So welcome, Matt. Thank you, Josiah. Thank you, Doug. Yeah. And I notice uh, your article in the New Atlantis, it has a nice illustration at the top with uh, a person... Uh, kind of pushing the earth up a mountainside and then there's like a nice pretty city at the top and at the bottom it looks kind of um, you know it's red and kind of uh, molten-ish I don't know like I presume of course that uh, you in addition to writing the article did not produce that that image but there's a lot going on there no, I didn't produce it directly, but I did have a hand in building some of the paper mache uh, windmills and uh, the the solar panels that you see in the in the picture at the top. You know, uh-huh. we we did build an entire city on a plateau, right, and then right. photograph it from a distance. Yeah, uh, but but it wasn't. I I didn't necessarily do the art direction. Okay, all right. Well, that's good. Okay, so uh, the piece is called "After Climate Despair." So I think we should start with the climate despair itself. Climate change obviously has been an issue that has concerned people for several decades at least. It does seem to me, though, that there has in the past year or so, well, there has certainly been in the past several years an increase in attention and concern uh, being paid to the climate change issue. And then particularly in the last year or so, there has been uh, what you might call a, a kind of real increase in uh, apocalyptic concern or, uh, you know, very, you know, I, I read all these stories about people talking to their, talking, talking to their therapists about how depressed they are because of climate change or, you know, such and such celebrities are not going to have kids because the world's going to be a hellscape because of climate change. I saw a video this morning of a group called Extinction Rebellion that was protesting climate change by they all dressed up in bee outfits and were like lying on the ground with their legs sticking in the air, kind of, I guess, the, to demonstrate that the bees were dying. I'm not quite sure what that was about. Uh, but it definitely does seem like there's been a, a real growth in climate-related anxiety and maybe uh, what are, to my mind, some kind of like over-the-top claims about how uh, the world is not going to be here anymore in 12 years or 10 years or however many years. 
because of climate change. So let's talk. So what do you what do you make of that phenomenon? Uh, perhaps it's just a media creation. That's always possible. People, you know, people yeah. like that kind of stories, but. I think if I were to uh, take that, you know, and ascribe like the sort of most charitable um, motives, it would be that people have decided that the futility of our approach thus far and the failure of the uh, political establishment around the world to achieve consensus and take the necessary steps to, you know, meet the IPCC's targets, um, that in in the face of that, the the need for further urgency. We have to plan, we have to argue based on the worst case outcomes. And so I think people are assuming that the, they can get more political traction and they can change more minds and they can raise more consciousness if uh, the, you know, the outcomes, the very worst possible outcomes are the ones they highlight. And so the sort of Mad Max hellscape vision of what the world will be like if we have, you know, three or more degrees of warming is the one that is chosen because it can change the most minds. And also because, uh, I mean, if, if that's the, you know, the, the end of the model's distribution uh, that you're going to focus on, it, it's a worrisome outcome. I, I do think that if you observe the model and if you trust the model and you want to go with, uh, and, and you want to take kind of a conservative uh, precautionary principle kind of approach to it, then sure, like the things that are cited in you know the IPCC reports as the outcomes of warming are pretty dire, and if that is something that energizes you, and if it's something that causes you to get engaged and get involved, then you probably think that similar panic is going to cause other people to get involved, and that is why I assume the sort of uh, the current agitation and um, essentially you know doom laden uh, rhetoric is so popular. Uh, it's catching on because for, there's sort of a, a second order effect of like, well, you know, I'm, I find myself mobilized by these horrible things that I've been reading and presumably my neighbor would also be mobilized by this and I'll take it to my neighbor too. Uh, but not everybody is politically mobilized as, as we're seeing now, a lot of people are uh, just sort of paralyzed into despair and futility and resignation. Uh, and that's, that's one of the things that I'm hoping, you know, we can kind of break out of this. I probably am not going to convince people who think that uh, we need to avoid whatever their sort of preferred worst case outcome is. Uh, but I would like to just pre present an alternative. Um, and that, you know, we if it, even if it doesn't work right now, even if this approach of, um, you know, maximizing the, uh, the bad news, uh, even if that doesn't succeed in mobilizing people, like the Climate is going to continue whatever change is baked into the model right now, um, you know, for a good many years, and we're going to have to live with the outcome. We're going to have to live with the consequences. And I think I, what I want to do is I want to make my objections to gloom and doom uh, pragmatic ones. I don't think it's working. I want to ask you a question about that because at the beginning of right before the sort of this current presidential election really kicked off, there was all the talk about the Green New Deal. And I think sort of in the first presidential debate, all the Democratic candidates uh, were asked if they supported it. And I think almost all of them did. And there was this expectation that the Democratic Party was moving far to the left 
And right now, you know, at this particular moment with Elizabeth Warren dropping in the polls, uh, Beto O'Rourke and Kamala Harris having dropped out, that doesn't really seem to be the case as much. Do you think that maybe we're seeing a shift a little bit that, or maybe we're seeing through sort of some of this hype that even though there was a lot of talk there for a while, that maybe the doom and gloom that people aren't really buying into the doom and gloom as much as we thought they were just a few months ago? I am a terrible political handicapper, and I don't necessarily follow um, the, you know, especially the Democratic Party and like where where the candidates' positions are all that closely. Uh, but I mean, it would be great if people took a more, like I advise, a pragmatic and little bit less moralizing and less tendentious approach to climate in general. I think catastrophism is mobilizing to a particular uh, sector of you know, Democratic voters, and they have a lot of uh, attention in the media, but I don't necessarily know whether that's going to cash out in terms of real political support. The Green New Deal is an example of something that it's, you know, I try to, like I said, uh, take everybody's uh, motivations, um, you know, as as stated and try to be as charitable as possible when I model other people's uh, intentions. But the Green New Deal is a difficult case for that because it really does seem like uh, you know, a, a policy package that is coattailing on climate catastrophism. You mentioned, uh, you know, people, some people are frustrated that there hasn't been more action on this issue. And there has been what I would consider to be more rhetoric and posturing than actual action when it comes to climate from both left and right. I would even put the Green New Deal into that category. And in in your article, you uh, cite a book by uh, Dale Jameson, Reason in a Dark Time, and he kind of offers in there a suggestion that, well, maybe politics is just not equipped to handle the sort of issue that climate change is. And so it shouldn't be so surprising that politicians haven't fixed it because... That's the that's the nature of the beast. Could you just explain that a little bit? Yeah, I uh, found this book, Reason in a Dark Time, by Dale Jameson, and incidentally, the book seems to have inspired the Jonathan Franzen article in the New Yorker that made the rounds recently. I know I noticed a few years ago that Franzen had blurbed Jameson's book, and uh, so that I, that's I sort of remarked upon that at the time, and so it was funny to see the same sort of. Uh, Doomerism, as it got called, uh, show up in Franzen's article uh, that Jameson's book sort of uh, inspired in me. Although I don't want to sell his book short, I think it's a really good analysis of the political realities of climate change. As humans, we we just lack sort of the ethical and political tools to coordinate our actions when the benefits are as dispersed and as time lagged as they are. And it was a good sort of it was a good book to read because it's written from the perspective of someone. He's a philosopher, and he but he's been studying climate science for a really long time. It seems like he's followed the issue for a couple decades now, and uh, I found it to be a very persuasive book written by someone sympathetic to the climate mitigation cause. Uh, but it was saying it was trying to tell his sort of like-minded readers that there really is not a political solution to be hoped for. And his uh, sort of upshot of it is, is best left to him to describe, like sort of where that leaves us and what the ethical implications of that are, and how to live um, 
you know, an, an ethical life, even in the face of the futility of your attempts to um, remedy the problem. But overall, I thought it was a great book, and I thought his account of why there's no political solution to this was was persuasive. But I guess I have a different vision of what we might be able to do to dig ourselves out. Okay, well, let, yeah, let's talk a little bit about that vision, because, uh, you know, we've addressed some of the different ways that you think uh, have either not worked or are not going to work. Uh, so what what's the alternative then? What What sort of approach would you suggest that people take in thinking about and, and trying to come up with solutions for climate? Well, first off, I'm not, you know, a, a climate sort of technologist or scientist or an economist. And so I don't have, you know, a, a policy plan. Um, I wish I could sort of point to a folder that had, you know, my pathways, um, you know, my proposed pathways uh, broken out and how we'll reach a certain, you know, acceptable level of warming. And so, but I do uh, feel like there was an opportunity to intervene rhetorically and give people sort of a better vision of um, how to face a future that they may not be around for, but their grandchildren will be. And one way to think about that is instead of uh, how should we ration the resources that will be available to our grandchildren, or even worse, like how should we ration our own grandchildren so that they don't compete for resources with these other, you know, hungry mouths that are be teeming all over the earth, uh, scrabbling for, you know, scarce resources. Uh, instead of thinking it that way, think about, you know, what we are going to hand out, hand over to our grandchildren a world that has been affected by our decision to dig up and burn fossil fuels. And what, what could we actually equip them with uh, that would help them uh, help dig out, dig themselves out of this problem that we created? And one thing is a huge supply of carbon-free energy. It would be the most useful thing for them because you know, the technology to capture and store carbon dioxide is going to improve. And they, you know, in a few generations, it will be technically possible, given an abundant energy supply, to store the carbon dioxide that we've spit out into the atmosphere and put it back into the lithosphere. And I don't want to you know, argue the costs and benefits. I feel like my article is aimed at people who think it's worth something, um, but it's not worth impoverishing the globe. And um, the, so the, the, those are the sort of people who are inclined to agree with me anyway. Uh, and so I think that those people might not have a home in the current climate discourse, like people who uh, don't necessarily find themselves energized and mobilized by catastrophism have not really had a home because there's not a lot of uh, you know, sane voices out there saying, you know what, these climate models, they may be right. And I, think, I feel like if you don't necessarily buy into the full consensus panic uh, that the IPCC represents over climate, uh, a lot of people kind of drift towards, well, it's probably not a problem after all. And I'm trying to offer like a sort of a rhetorical framework for people who agree it probably is a problem. And there are other reasons that it could be a problem. It might not, you know, the, we may discover that climate change and global warming is only the second worst problem of CO2 pollution. Like there may be other, you know, human health effects of uh, excessive CO2 levels. And so I was hoping to give people a way to think about that without just retreating into despair. And hopefully, this idea that abundant zero carbon energy is a legacy that we can leave to future generations with which they can help pay down this carbon debt uh, is an idea that catches on. And other people smarter than I and wealthier than I am and more technically astute than I am can take it and run with it.
Well, let's talk a little bit more about carbon capture then. This is an idea that, I mean, on, on one level, it's it's pretty intuitive, but um, there are a variety of ways to do it, a variety of technologies that are out there. What, like our listeners who are not that in the weeds on some of this stuff, maybe you could give kind of a high level overview of what the thinking is behind carbon capture and storage and the prospects for it. Yeah, sure. So about 10 years ago, a lot of the research on carbon capture and storage was based around this idea that you're going to strip the carbon dioxide off of flue gas as it escapes from fossil burning power plants and then inject it underground. And so therefore you have to find a way to locate your fossil plants over some acceptable reservoir and uh, inject it underground. And, and a lot of this was funded, you know, I actually worked uh, peripherally on some of these projects. And a lot of this was funded by, um, you know, the government, maybe by the Bush administration with the idea of offering a lifeline into the future for the coal industry and a way to burn coal cleanly, um, you know, even in the face of a uh, carbon constrained economy. So a lot of the research went into saying, well, if we capture gas, or, sorry, if we capture CO2 from a gas plant or from a coal plant, then where can we store it underground? And it turns out that there are pretty abundant, um, there are pretty abundant storage reservoirs underground. And that is the consensus view. That doesn't make it cheap. Um, at, but it also, um, you know, so you face this problem of, well, we have to identify these, you know, we have to put all of our future ver coal burning plants on these sites that are suitable for CO2 injection and so forth. So that these projects didn't really get anywhere. They were kind of a boondoggle to begin with, like I say, because they were a sop to the fossil fuels industry. But Klaus Lackner at uh, with the University of Arizona um, has been working on free air capture or direct air capture. So DAC and, and a few other people have been working on direct air capture too. So there is an outfit up uh, north of Vancouver, Canada, that uh, is kind of funded by Bill Gates and a few other people that is called uh, Carbon Engineering. And they're building air capture plants as well, because the idea is if we actually want to capture carbon from the air, uh, it's, you know, it's a lot less concentrated than it is in flue gas. Uh, and so you need different machinery. And, but it would allow us to no longer sort of face this question of having to locate our power plants on the same place that we're injecting it. And um, it also wouldn't sort of build a whole new infrastructure to help coal survive for another generation. Like that was the other problem with the idea of stripping it out of uh, coal plant flue gas is it sort of um, gives coal a, a new lease on life uh, into a carbon constrained future, which was never very realistic, but it would be a dumb idea. So, um, but direct air capture, the big benefit for me is that direct air capture would let us catch the emissions from the past because we have a lot of catching up to do. I mean, we've really racked up uh, an atmospheric carbon debt that we need to start paying down. And you can't do that if you're, all you're catching are your incremental emissions. So part of my vision of you know, a future with uh, abundant energy would involve uh, catching using that energy to pull CO2 out of the atmosphere. You could locate these facilities, sort of like the ones that they are developing uh, at carbon engineering, you'd locate these facilities wherever you found appropriate reservoirs, and you wouldn't have to put them next to coal power plants. There's a, a lot of advantages to this. Like one of the more fiendish problems of CO2 is that once you release it, 
it's in the atmosphere, it's a global problem, and there's no localized effect. So somebody who is releasing CO2 uh, at their power plant is not necessarily you know, harming anybody nearby directly. And so that whole problem of uh, the indirect nature of the damage makes it especially tricky to solve. Um, I mean, it's just such a challenging coordination problem. Uh, but that which is a problem becomes a potential solution if you can engage in direct air capture, because direct air capture means that you, somebody who might have the money and the technical skills to capture carbon dioxide, can just start pulling out of the atmosphere no matter where it was released. And that's it, it takes one of the sort of trickiest problems of CO2 and turns it into a benefit. So one of the questions I have there is how do we really move forward with carbon capture? Uh, I guess I got a, a few questions on this front. Is this something that should be nudged along or required by state or federal policy? And and then I kind of want to talk about whether it's really feasible to commercialize from on a free market basis uh, carbon capture. But I, but I think that, Josiah, you just recently wrote in the Houston Chronicle uh, about an idea of Texas leading the charge on carbon capture. What did you what did you have in mind there? Uh, yeah, I did. So, I mean, Texas is already, if you look at the carbon capture and sequestration projects that are out there, uh, it kind of varies depending on what list you want to go to as to how, you know, are there 20, are there 40, are there 17, depending on your criteria. But uh, there are not that many of them, and uh, there are... Uh, a number of them in Texas, including several of the major ones, um, like uh, like Net Power and some other things like that. So uh, that's obviously an interest. I think the biggest challenge uh, in the past for the development of carbon capture technologies, uh, both direct air capture and then in right at the moment of combustion, has been just the uh the the economics of it in that um it's always going to be cheaper to just not capture the carbon than to do it uh because it's going to cost you something and so if there's not money to be made from capturing it there's not an economic incentive to develop cheap technologies to do it so you end up with things that are you know, some demonstration projects that are really expensive and that no one uses. And there, there are, however, some commercial options for carbon capture, the, the chief one being uh, enhanced oil recovery. So you can use the CO2 uh, in order to help increase oil and gas production. And then there's, there's some other more minor things like carbonate, you know, carbonization sodas, or I think, I think, uh, Doug, you not too long ago sent me an article really excited about some brewery that was using carbon capture in order to, to help them with their brewery. Is that right? That's right. I've I've seen uh, uh, ideas for commercializing on a sort of smaller scale um, carbon capture to uh, for for beer and also for vodka and Impossible Burgers. So. <laughs> I've been I've been joking around that it, you know it's it's not going to be great for our liver if the the way to fight climate change is that we have to consume that much vodka. Right, but you, you're willing to make the sacrifice, right? 
So, you know, obviously those, uh, those opportunities are good, both in the incentive they create in the short term to sequester some carbon and in that they may provide an incentive to try and develop cheaper technologies. Uh, I think if you, you know, just to, to, to achieve these things at scale, most of the carbon that's that's captured is going to have to just be injected in the ground and and stay there, right? There's just not enough market. To, there's not that many uh, things you can do with with uh, CO two unless we get the like George Washington Carver of CO two who figured out how to how to make like you know clothes and and all sorts of other things with it. Well, carbon engineering is making synthetic fuel from it. So if you have you know, if, if you have, if you can, if you can convert some of your uh, economy to, you know, hydrogen fuel, and you have an, again an abundant source of energy, one of the sort of ways that carbon engineering is hoping to sort of bridge their business plan from today into like a carbon capturing future is by generating synthetic fuel from the carbon dioxide that they capture from the air. So if you can if you can create synthetic fuel from your CO2, you know, it has a pretty high energy input, but it means that you are not actually using any new petrochemicals to create that jet fuel or whatever. So, you know, again, it it, it just comes back to this question of the energy input. Like you have to have a zero carbon energy source. But it, once you have a zero carbon energy source, if it's abundant enough, you can use that to capture the CO2 right. from the air and then put that CO2 into your synthetic fuel that you can then use to drive uh, you know, those sectors of your economy that still require liquid fuel. And you don't have to dig up, you, know, you don't have to pump crude oil to fly an airplane at that point because you've already put the energy into collecting uh, the CO2, converting the CO2 into synthetic fuel. and um, that becomes your fuel, so it it at least sort of closes the loop. Uh, it doesn't you know perv- it doesn't turn the airplane into zero emissions because you still had to uh, you know you're still burning something there. But over the life cycle, you can create a carbon neutral liquid energy source uh, or liquid energy storage medium with CO two. So I mean it ha- it has potential you know on the margins, but overall, yeah, we have to look at CO two as a waste product. Um, and, and that's one of the things that Klaus Lackner is trying to encourage people to think in terms of is, you know, CO2 is a waste stream that is produced by human activity. Um, it's not some you know, moral failing. It's just a waste product that we have not yet gotten around to coordinating our approach to uh, in the same way that, you know, cities used to be full of filth because nobody you know, bothered to collect, uh, you know, to, to coordinate the cost and spread the cost around of trash collection or sewage. And Lackner's uh, proposal is, you know, let's work towards a world in which we coordinate the collection and removal and storage of waste CO2 the same way that we coordinate the collection and storage of and disposal of other waste products. Yeah, and some cities still are full of filth, but uh, that's a different story, I guess. True enough, yeah. yeah. Um, but and, and one of the things he says is like, when you look at a city that's full of filth, you, you think this is not a civilized place. Like a part of our definition of civilization is we clean up the waste streams of our activities. And, you know, his example is if sewage is a problem, you don't solve that problem by telling people to go to the bathroom less. Right. You know, you solve that problem by 
collecting the sewage and treating it. So there's a there's a musical that came out about a decade ago, gosh, maybe more, called uh, that was a parody of the Bertolt Brecht Three Penny Opera kind of dystopian situation. So the setup behind uh, of this is that it was in a place where it was in a very ecologically uh, fragile watershed. And so they basically, in, in order to minimize the sewage, had a single company take over all the, all the restrooms. And, you know, you had to basically like pay for tickets or something. So people could only go to the bathroom once a day. And then there was a revolution and because people got upset and it was it was pretty it's pretty funny and bleak in its own way. So yeah, so that might you know if you're looking for if you're looking for a good holiday diversion from the end of the world from climate change, I don't know if they made a movie of it. So it's pro- you probably can't see it. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, I remember seeing posters for it. Uh, but just th- this idea that of you know maybe maybe the way forward maybe we can help uh, take some steps forward by uh, toning down a lot of the moral discourse and, and, and turning uh, CO2 into a waste product like other things that are not necessarily this mark of sin and uh, you know of, of personal failing and this idea that if we can start approaching it as a waste product and build an infrastructure to clean it up and let people who are good at cleaning up CO2 and who have the resources and you know the geological sequestration sites and the technology and let them, uh, specialize in the cleanup of CO2, of waste carbon dioxide, then we don't necessarily have to judge our neighbor for their decision to conduct economic activity that happens to emit CO2, uh, especially if there's you know, a good faith understanding that our neighbor is paying to clean up some of that CO2. And obviously, like it, it's challenging. Like That's why you know, we haven't solved this problem yet, is that the, the, the fiendish problems of CO2 and the fact that the damage is so distributed and the damage is at the margin is just so small from any unit of um, you know, CO2 that you or I might release. And it's also so time lagged. I mean, if it were easy to allocate the cost for this, if it were easy to price the externalities, we would have done it by now. Uh, but treating it as a waste product, with, you know, which like other waste products should be cleaned up by whoever emits it is, I think, a productive place to start. All right. So, uh, speaking of moralizing and waste products, uh, one of your claims to fame is that you quit Twitter, and uh, unlike so many other people who have quit Twitter, you never came back. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so, you know, as as someone uh, who is a fairly active Twitter user myself, I, I have to ask, like, what what is life like? What do you do with all your free time now? Private Slack. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we won't. Sorry. I, I, I wish I wish I could say, you know, I, I'd learned three languages since I quit Twitter. <laughs> but I'm just basically I'm basically doing the same old thing in a smaller room. Yeah. But right. I think that's healthier and that's what everybody should do. OK. All right. Well, um, I'm not uh, I'm not going to comment on that. But um, OK, well, uh, then then we'll end it there. Uh, Matt Frost, thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah, it was a good time. Thanks a lot, Josiah. And thanks for reading the article. Oh, no problem. Bye-bye. No, sir. I am Baby Yoda. 